Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. November 9th, 2020, episode 181. Lean in, lean back. Hello and welcome. Thanks for stopping by. I am Kevin England. I am confident that you know by now this is the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. I come to you on this Monday because I have taken a vacation day for work and decided that while I wait for the weather to warm up to an unseasonably warm November day, I could spend some time in the morning recording a sidebar edition of the show. It's November, and it's going to be 75 today. Go figure. I'm not really sure what to make of it, and I'm trying to find things to do and take advantage of the warm weather that we're going to have for the next week before it turns cold. Originally for this episode, I had planned to come back to two topics. I had mentioned in the last episode the poly hives rationale and implosion of a larger hive. I guess I'll touch upon the implosion part just in passing on this episode, but um, I'm going to save them for the next episode. I didn't have time to structure all that to my liking, and I had another thing rattling in my head that I had to get out. The topic's called Lean In and Lean Back. Speaking of structure, this one's been in the queue for at least two months. And when I originally came to the idea of bringing this up as a topic, it was in frustration of trying to understand what somebody was trying to tell me on a podcast where I didn't have the background information in order to make a good judgment on it. Couldn't evaluate it. Just did not have enough background about who was talking what they were trying to tell me, what their background was, what their experience was, in order to tell whether they were on the mark or off the mark. I'm not going to go into any detail other than just it spurred from that singular experience, thinking, how can I tell people that when they're gauging to present themselves, the first A rudimentary thing to do is an introduction. From that perspective, I meandered into several different variations and landed on a different way to approach the topic, which is why it got rewritten three times. If you think about it, what do you want in order to have a good interaction? I'll tell you what I'm looking for. I'll tell you the formula of the things that I look for when I'm consuming a book, a YouTube video, podcast episode, or whatever. I need to know up front, introductions. And I'll just leave it at that. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about lean in or lean back. And then I do want to have a short, um, yeah, I'm going to do a local hive report in this one. I'll come back to poly hives and large hives in the next episode, but I'm happy to have finished this topic and put it out here for consideration. So here we go. Topic number one, I call this one lean in or lean back. 
I've said this before on the show. There's been three or four topics in the time that I've been recording that I just struggled to find a way to articulate. And I think I have made probably three or four attempts at trying to figure out how to say this, <laughs> what I'm about to say. And I'm still not sure that I have it right, but at some point you've got to cut bait and move forward. So for topic number one, lean in or lean back, there's a, often a reason that spurs me to come to the microphone and share information or an insight or some guidance or wisdom. I listened to something the other day on another outlet, and I heard something repeated that was patently wrong. The funny thing is, I happen to know exactly where the source is for that patently wrong thing. It was somewhere else, different outlet. And I'm disheartened that it's being reported. It spurred me to think there needs to be some primer for how to know when to lean in or lean back on a conversation. I think you can understand when I say lean in, I mean pay attention. As to lean back, I kind of picture it in this way. You are sitting back listening and evaluating at the same time, and you're making choices about what to retain. Now, you would think that if I say lean in, the opposite would be to lean out instead of lean back. I purposely say lean back, and I'll explain that as we move through this piece. So it should be no surprise that I'm a beekeeping media junkie. I choose to fill chunks of my spare time seeking out content related to beekeeping. Podcasts, Facebook, forums, YouTube, books, and more. I developed a fascination for why about beekeeping early on, and in the pursuit of why, it keeps me engaged even after 12 years. I do not think that I will ever understand the complete why to every question, but I will say that I've knocked off a bunch of curiosities along the way. I feel pretty comfortable in my understanding of many things beekeeping. Suffice it to say, I have a lot of practice at seeking things out. So one thing that happens along the way, especially if you have committed to that practice, as long as I have, is that you come to understand the quality of the content you're consuming. This. This is what I want to talk about and spend some time discussing. I come into contact with beekeepers and I get recommendations of content in various forms. Listeners will send me an endorsement and sometimes it comes with a caveat. Someone will write in and say, Do you know about the so-and-so podcast? I discovered it recently and you have to listen to it. It's really good. I make a note and I circle back to it and I find it's awful. When I say awful, that sounds harsh. There's one thing that makes something immediately awful for me. It's when it gives the wrong information. When it comes to podcasting, I could live with a goofy host, poor sound quality, newbies expressing things they've seen, but they're not sure what they're doing, and they're learning and failing and succeeding, and other styles of presentation. What I dislike is information presented as proper and it's patently wrong. The danger in that is when a 
new person is listening simply because they don't have experience, they don't know the information is wrong and harm occurs by following some instruction or guidance. You know, to that end, there are podcasts, YouTube channels, book authors that I listen to and follow for the purpose of training. And there are those that I listen to for the entertainment value. Maybe they're not much on substance, but I still like the conversation and the social aspect of it. But there are clearly, as expected, outlets that I avoid, and I would hope that you could recognize them too and not take what they say and use them, like the example provided earlier. I think a lot of times when you're looking at information you're consuming, it's coming from one of two places. It's beekeepers who have experience and are talking about management practices, or it's researchers who are looking up information, and they too possibly have some sort of perspective on the management practice. So, for example, researchers and scientists who are trying to solve a problem in the commercial space for neonics or anything like that, they're primarily working for commercial. That's where their funding comes from. That's where their point of view is. I don't want to go into that rabbit hole. Let's just focus on beekeeping management styles. I'm going to give labels to management practice approaches. I'm not doing this to set us up for uh, us versus them, style versus style approach. It's more like I'm going to contrast aspects of the management styles and factors that influence success. And for that, I need to generalize them so everybody can follow along. Again, I'm making these labels up on the fly, so forgive if they're loose and fast. They're just generalizations. First off, there's the conventional beekeeper. I'll describe this one as they keep two hives out in the backyard. Beekeeping is a hobby for enjoyment and some reward. A large percentage of beekeepers fall into this category. Conventional beekeepers, they use Langstroth hives, and they often treat for mites. If there's a conventional, then there has to be an unconventional. I'm going to call this style the fringe. These are experimenters, people who are making things up as they go. Um, yeah, think Sam Comfort. If you need an example, there was a time when he was keeping bees in cardboard refrigerator boxes. He has experimented in his journey to keep bees, and currently he's employing something like a Waray-style box with bamboo skewers as frames. So, a fringe. On the premise of that, I think you could not get far in telling a conventional person that, you know, you should hang your comb on bamboo skewers. There are commercial beekeepers. They have hundreds, if not thousands, of hives. I'll go out on a limb and say 99% of them are using Langstroth hive equipment. And they're generally in it for pollination contracts, honey production, things like that. There are alternative beekeepers. Similar to conventional, but... Well, I would say these are usually hobbyists with small number of hives. The difference is they're using unconventional equipment, meaning they're not using Langstroth Hive equipment. Let's just categorize all these together. Remember, loose and fast. Top R, Lay-ins, Waray, Beekeepers. Maybe they possibly have a Langstroth in the mix, but they're experimenters, alternative. Like conventional beekeepers, they probably just have a handful of hives. 
by my way of thinking, there's maybe three more. The first one is a sideliner. This is a small-scale commercial beekeeper. They may have a permanent job or they're doing just enough to eke out a living. They have more hives than the hobbyists by a reasonable margin. But they would not be considered a full-time commercial operation. The second one is a treatment-free beekeeper. In most respects, they're not too dissimilar from a hobbyist. It would not be unusual for them to have more hives than a regular conventional beekeeper. It would be typical for them to use Langstroth equipment, but that can vary. And the biggest differentiator, as the label expresses, is they don't treat for mites. They don't worry about that. The last one is everyone else. There's always those situations that defy categorization. We'll just give this class a label of other. So if I do a quick run through of the inventory of what I dreamed up, and maybe I changed the order a little. Conventional, two Lang hives, fringe, sideliner, more conventional, less commercial, small business. Commercial, dozens to hundreds to thousands of hives. Alternative, top bar, lanes, ware, log hives, tree trunks, various non-Langstroth hives. Treatment-free, maintaining more hives than conventional beekeepers with an eye towards breeding from survivors. And then there's other. So there had to be a reason to go over all of that. I'm going to stop for a second and talk about something real quick. You can receive your information both personally, in person, connections with people that you interact with, and you can consume it through outlets. I think about, uh, for example, my neighbor down the street, literally, other end of my street, similar style. And I would hope that as I ran through those styles, you chose yours. And it would make sense right off the bat to consider that those are your peeps. I'm not saying you can't look across other styles, but generally, if you're trying to figure out what you're doing in your backyard, you should follow the people who do the same thing because they have experience at your level, which we'll get into. My neighbors down the road keep bees. They have more hives than I do, but they're hobbyists. They treat. They literally live on the same street, so they have the same weather and all the other things. So from a conventional standpoint, and experienced beekeeper, I trust and see the results that they have. Uh, why wouldn't you collaborate with that type of person and exchange information? Two is stronger than one, right? We're mostly compatible, but sometimes we do things differently. And we learn from each other where we deviate from each other. Now, ask yourself, if that was a large commercial operation down the end of the road, would it be the same thing? That's a good one. And you can think about that in a few different ways. Maybe I would come out the good side of this because working with a commercial person, their experience is above all. Commercial people are in their bees every day up to their necks and seeing far more touches and, and uh, interactions with colonies than a hobbyist. So they could learn so much in a short amount of time. So there's an element of truth that maybe a commercial person is good. But what about the other way around? 
given my passion for bees and attention to detail, and I have more time to do detailed inspections and take notes, and maybe I could spot something that would benefit the commercial person. Something that could be overlooked in a larger operation is they tend to do cursory inspections based on management required because efficiency is one of the key derivatives of running a business. So it's plausible that we could be simpatico in certain ways. But I think if you look at that from a perspective, I probably get more bang for the buck out of somebody who's in my lane. I want the takeaway to be that we can all benefit from each other, right? Don't close the door, but think about which one you should give more credence to when you're trying to make decisions on how to do things. Now, does that mean all exposure is good exposure? I think the answer is no, uh, especially if you're a new beekeeper and you can't decipher right from wrong because you just don't have the practical experience. From a fundamental standpoint, as a new beekeeper, you should stay with a local club, a local mentor, or someone who is catering to a new person and always trying to give that perspective of, this is what you encounter, this is why you encounter it, and this is what you should do with it. When you're listening to a commercial person who's often speaking in their lane, they're not targeting a young, new beekeeper. I don't mean young in age, I mean young in experience. So, okay, we'll put this behind it, but I want to stop for a moment and reflect on something I'll call the beekeeping equation. I talked about management styles, all the ones we just ran through. That's a single facet of it. You could then turn to other aspects and say that beekeeping is dynamic. And literally, every one of us has a different equation. The other big factors in beekeeping practices, location, weather, bee quality, bee traits, beekeeper experience. It is the essence of the dynamic nature of beekeeping. I'm going to take a shot at the equation. S for style. Pick one of the ones or make up your own. E for environment, because everyone's environment is different. W for weather. If you have weather, you could live in the tropics or you could live in temperate zones. K for know-how. Each one of us has had our own path and we'll take our real-world experiences into the equation. B for bee quality. Nature ensures diversity and different bees are different. G for genetics. Or maybe you want to talk about traits. And U for the uncontrollable factors. Examples, hurricanes, storms, bears, killing the queen. So you have to do your math. If you could assign values to all these factors, S plus E plus W times K plus B times G divided by U <laughs> equals your apiary. No, I wasn't going to give you a real equation. I'm just saying to you that the diversity of all this comes back to literally every situation is different. That's what's dynamic about it. 
Isn't it clear now why if you ask 10 beekeepers a question, you'll get 10 different answers and more likely than 20? If we look at the elements of the equation and look at our learning, it is possible that everything you are seeking to understand is so that you could do the math in your backyard. And if I say that to you, every person you're listening to, don't you want to know their details? Don't you at least want to understand their style, their environment, their weather, their know-how, their bee quality? If that stuff pertains, then you could take that information, you have some factors to consider when learning, and you could turn to find trusted outlets, trusted sources. So what, what makes a trusted source? You're about to engage with someone in exchange of information. Maybe you're reading a magazine feature, you're at a local beekeeping meeting, you're at a regional conference, you're trying to figure out a book author to align to, you're standing at a hive with someone, someone's conveying information and you're listening. Sometimes the interface is intentional and you could baseline it before you get there, meaning I plan to go to a meeting and I know who I'm going to see. And sometimes you're just in an ad hoc situation. Someone steps up at a meeting and they're going to start talking about it. First thing I would encourage you to do is baseline the situation. Who is speaking and what is their background? Try to understand that information as an input. I find my level of engagement is predicated on my baseline. When I know the situation, I'm leaning in. When I'm evaluating the situation, I'm leaning back. I'm standing at a distance. When the situation is suspect, I'm really leaning back. And I suppose at certain times in even those conversations, I'll lean forward. That requires a quick aside. I've listened to people who just have no clue. No clue. But I will say, and a lot of times what happens is people know who I am. They want to tell me something. I, I get encounters where they just ramble on. And I go, Woo, holy cow. <laughs> you meet all kinds. <laughs> right? But I always, I, I'm not being rude. I'm not being placating. I, I listen. Because even in some of the strangest encounters, I've always picked up something. I'm looking for that little morsel, that little tidbit. For example, I listened to a North Carolina certified journeyman beekeeper. Certified. Announced it right up front, showed that they had some sort of, I don't know what the ranking system is in North Carolina, but you went through something to get this title. Presenting at EAS, and it was so off the mark that it was embarrassing. I knew the topic he was presenting casually because I had researched it. And he got just about everything wrong in the presentation. Bob Kloss was sitting next to me, his elbows and his ribs were sore because I kept poking and going, oh my God. <laughs> Certified is good, but wrong is wrong. And that was one of the worst sessions I've ever sat in on. But somewhere in the middle, though, he did relay one factoid about the particular thing that was of interest and unknown to me. And I was able to go back and learn something, do some more research. So if you could picture a camera sitting in the room looking at me in the audience, I was leaned back, man. I was leisurely, <laughs> <laughs> leisurely, 
lean back, not lean forward. But at one point you saw me sit up and then scribble something in my notes. That's what I mean. It's a full lean back session with one lean in. I mentioned knowing who is speaking and what their background is. I also take into account who is the target audience. Every time you consciously partake in an exchange with others, you choose the words, if you're the presenter conveying the information, in an attempt to have a successful communication. As such, you can anticipate that the presenters, the authors, the writers, they perceive who they're conveying the information and they try to vary the tone and craft the information accordingly. This is where I give credit to, you know, look, if you're writing a book, you've had all the time in the world to present your point of view. If you're called on the spot and you could present something cold and get it out and tailor it to the audience, good for you. That's a skill. There's very few that have that. I was struck by Solomon Parker, for example, when we went to see him at Del Val. He was asked several questions off the cuff. He had thought through it. He understood what was being asked, and he presented an, an appropriate answer for the thing, for the question at hand. You know, that, that takes a certain skill to be put on the spot. That's a lot of why people are uncomfortable about speaking, because you do not like to be approached when you're not prepared. There's some strange situations that result from this dynamic. But when you take them into context, they make absolute sense. I'll give you an example. Megan Milbrath. Super intelligent, well-known, well-spoken, huge depth of experience. And yet, when she talks at EAS, she's calling her bees her girls in front of an audience of hundreds of people. You might ask yourself, why would a researcher do such a thing? I'd say... Frankly, in context, it makes perfect sense if you stand back and look at it. It was a conscious choice. Contextually, Megan is working in a room with beekeepers from all dynamics, and she's trying to communicate with meaning and understanding. To ensure she does not leave anyone behind, she's going to adjust her voice to plain speak. Now, I'm not talking about baby talk. I mean, she carefully is choosing her words. She speaks more illustratively and uses simpler words and phrases. She provides examples. All to help everyone make the connection and not leave anyone behind with the information she's trying to convey. Hearing Megan talk is in direct contrast with hearing someone like, I'll pick a Clarence Collison speak. Clarence's style is far more formal and more academic when he's in front of an audience. The narrative voices used is night and day between these two. Clarence's style demands you be up to speed if you want to grasp on what he's sharing. I should stop to say I'm not picking on Clarence, and honestly I do, do not want to infer that he doesn't moderate his message. I'm just using it illustratively. I've seen Clarence speak, and when somebody asks him a clarifying question, he goes back and explains it in plain speak. But what I'm saying is, you might speculate that you would not hear Clarence ever call his bees his girls. And that's fine. 
It's a style thing and to each his own. So part of what you want to do is connect with the style that makes sense for you, helps you. Because if you're stopping in the middle of what somebody's talking, unless you can replay the tape, your mind's off thinking about what the hell are they talking about. That's a really frustrating thing to do. Now, could Megan talk like Clarence? The answer is of course. However, Megan knows that if she kicked into her university voice, she would largely leave part of the audience behind. Now, I want you to picture Megan out in the field with trained researcher peers. I'm going to bet that she does not remove the inner cover and tell the university student to take mite samples of the girls. It's not happening. In fact, if a newbie by happenstance happened to be standing out in the field while she was interacting with university academics, they probably have no idea what the hell they were talking about. It just so happens that Megan is a commercial beekeeper too. So she has that voice and experience in her background and can field questions in the realm of commercial beekeeping, hobbyist beekeeping, academic questions, just as easily from a new beekeeper, experienced beekeeper, and academic. It's all in the art of teaching and style, and Megan gets positive reviews in her sessions simply because she makes the effort to connect. New, university, commercial, so on, she can move in and out of various points and has the experience to back it up. Because of this qualities, and we've just reviewed it all, it's not unusual for clubs, conferences, and other organizations to seek her out, to speak. And this is where you learn that if you're a new beekeeper or someone looking to keep bees, you could find her stuff, and she typically writes it in a narrative that's approachable. She's often speaking to the dynamic of conventional beekeepers. So there's your style. But her fundamentals aren't confusing, they're well explained, and even experienced beekeepers learn from Megan. And I've seen some questions from experienced beekeepers in the audience at EAS that ask her things and they learn too. So I think, um, I, I think um, her, her voice works for her. That's her voice that she's found. Now the bad news is there are certain people who listen to her voice and call it fluffy. <laughs> They just can't get past when they when she calls her girls girls, they their brain goes and stops and they, they're done. They they can't make the connect with that. To each his own, I guess. So if you don't like that, then you're gonna have to find someone else. Who might appeal to you if you're a little more seasoned and you want a different voice? I'm throwing a name out. Michael Palmer. The guy's a guru. He has one thing that anyone can admire. It's hands-on experience coupled with business acumen. It's actually two things, I guess. But, you know, he's a gifted beekeeper, make no mistake. When I think about Mike, I think about it from a, a dynamic that he's an accountant beekeeper. I mean that as a compliment. I, I don't know what Mike would think if he heard me say that. But I think it takes into account his especially advanced business acumen. It seems to me that Mike knows just about every implication of every facet of his operation, and more importantly, whether it's a benefit or detriment to his business, because this is what he does for a living. 
Over the years, he has systematically strengthened his every aspect of his management style to his operational benefit. If you listen to him talk, the undertone is often about efficiency, and it's really admirable. Hard thing to achieve, to go through and do efficiency through your whole operation. And especially if efficiency appeals to you, then you're going to subscribe to that point of view. Commercial style, by the way. I want to point out what I just said, and we can come back to that in a little bit. It is the notion to subscribe to a point of view, to have an affinity for a way to conduct your business. Put a pin in that, and we'll come back and pull on that thread. Commercial efficiency. If we pause for a moment and perform a test, we're going to test something. Could a conventional two hives in the backyard beekeeper listen to Mike and find a path of righteousness? I say honestly, that's a steep hill to climb. It has nothing to do with the value and conviction of Mike's message, but what he says has to be taken into context. If you don't understand the dynamics of a commercial operation, then it is likely that for some of the reasons, the why and what he does, it will end up being foreign to you. It might net out that you see his process as a formula, but you don't have the context of why you're doing something. That's dangerous. Follow a formula with not knowing why is dangerous. The other thing about his operation is he has mating nukes and he has drone yards and he has different types of overwintering equipment than you do in a conventional backyard. So it's really hard sometimes to make the connection. If you listen to this podcast for any point of time, you know that my pension to understand why something works or why you might do something supersedes any formula that you could possibly come up with. Formula. It's a Kevin moment. That word holds so much meaning when it comes to beekeeping practices. There's some holy grail things in beekeeping. Race of bees, perfect queen, perfect type of equipment, full management practices. I see the management practice formulas come and go, and beekeepers get on board without evaluating the why, because the person professed such passion for success said it works for them. I just talked about Darwinian beekeeping, single box, small size, last episode. In the past, I've talked about three deeps. That's the way to go. Tim Ives, three tower hive Ives, <laughs> right? So you have a complete contrast in ideas there. Which one is right? There are formulas. Personally, and this is the advice I give, forgo the magic formulas and learn the conventional basic first. Once you have that context under your belt, then look at magic formulas if you really want. But do it with experimentation, a discerning eye, and make good choices. Sometimes there's just not enough magic in the magic formulas. And you know, beekeeping can be a, a costly thing to experiment with. End of Kevin moment. So Michael Palmer, is he someone to be concerned about? I'm going to confuse you and say absolutely not. 
That sounds opposite of where you were going a moment ago, Kevin. Yeah? I'll take a moment to explain. Michael is brilliant, simply brilliant. The richness of the experience that he has is woven into his talks, and there's something for everyone if you learn to listen. You might be lean back at the beginning and lean in every once in a while. I, even with experience, need to deconstruct what the hell Mike is talking about and connect the dots. I've seen Mike talk in person, literally, a couple times, and I've certainly watched his videos. I remember the first time seeing him, and if you've ever seen me at one of these sessions, I have a notebook or a computer and I'm taking notes. I'm really trying to get what's coming, especially when you can't film it or record it, so that I can evaluate it later. I think he was about to his fourth slide, and I was so lost in taking notes, my head exploded. He went fast. It all seemed so natural to him, but I was so green at the time that I couldn't keep up. I think in this day and age, I could go back to that talk and keep pace with him. But in my newbie days, totally lost. I know now that on that day, he was aiming his talk at beekeepers who desired to explore practices that made a commercial operation successful. He wasn't talking to me. He was asked to come down and talk about his operation, and he talks commercial. That's his thing. He wasn't talking to the two hive in the backyard beekeeper. <laughs> Actually, he was, because there were some of us in the audience. Actually, most of us in the audience were probably that. And that therein lies the rub, right? His talk was for aspirational commercial beekeepers, but he had diversity in the audience when it comes to the point of view. But his perspective was he was going to talk about what he knew. Now, even now, I like to learn from Mike's recordings. I can watch a segment, pause it, take notes, digest what he said, and then I take back what I learn and apply it if it's applicable based on whatever his topic was. The cool thing about Mike's talks are they're so rich with nuances. He goes in and out of all the aspects in harmony of his business, and maybe you don't follow all of it, but there are certain parts of it that are interesting. He's very formulaic, I will say. He does have formulas. And if you're a two-hive-in-the-backyard beekeeper, it might not be the way to go. On the bonus side, though, Mike's talks are often prepped with little gifts that apply to everybody's practices. If you want to learn how to pick up a queen off of a frame, Mike does it all the time. And he tells you how to do it, how to mark her, how to put her back in, how to introduce a queen into a hive and things like that. Is that the key thing to a commercial operation? No, but you could certainly learn that from Mike, and that's where I did learn that. He's in the middle of telling you how to structure your operation to set your vibes up and get your mating nukes and whatever, and he stops for a minute, drops in that tip right in the rapid-fire succession, and uh, man, what a nugget that even a two-hive beekeeper can learn from. So I don't tell you to avoid Mike. I tell you to lean back 
and then lean forward when there's something of interest. In summary, Megan versus Mike, two completely different styles. One caters to new beekeepers. The other one's often delivering operational oversight guidance for commercial, but both are providing wisdom to different dynamics of beekeeping. Now, when you learn, you can find out that Mike's in Vermont. He's a commercial beekeeper. You know what kind of weather he has. He talks about the type of bees he has. He talks about his management style, treatment, and all that stuff. You can also go to Megan's website and learn all that information, too. So you can get your baseline, you can understand the point of view, and then you can have a good interaction with two different beekeepers. And that applies to just about anything, whether it's a book, a magazine article, a YouTube video that you're watching. I want to head off in another line of thinking, but before I do, I have to come back to the affinity for a point of view. I think it's natural for us to align with others that have our point of view. If what someone is presenting is aligned to our direction, our way of thinking, well, you naturally have to love that kind of guy or gal. Mm. Uh, th that was oddly placed. I should have said person, but the love that kind of guy reference. Uh, yeah, that was a pull from Days of Thunder movie. Ever see that movie? Best racing movie ever. Harry Hogg telling Cole Trickle how he loved Buddy Bratherton because of how well he did in Harry's race cars. But yeah, okay, end of Kevin moment. Seriously, we like to find people on our own same path, and more importantly, we are drawn to them showing us the way. I think it has a lot to do with why there are legions who profess one style or another as better. And underneath it all, it has to do with this deep-rooted alignment of what appeals to our nature and our preferences and our situation. Home stretch. I want you to know your sources. Especially when it comes to trying to find places for consumption of information. Talks, interviews, podcasts. I discussed the five styles earlier, and I want you to apply them to hear what you're listening to. And I alluded to this just a second ago. I don't know about you, but sometimes I scream at my phone. Just disclose the information already. I need to know that in order to have a good baseline. I said before that when I listen to any piece, it might be Kim Flottam and Jeff talking to Sam Ramsey on the Beekeeping Today podcast or a TED Talk on bees in the environment or, uh, you know, treatment-free podcast or something. Whatever it is, I try to consider who is asking and who is answering and what do they bring to the party. Which category are they in? Which style? What's the likely practices in play and how would they be conveying the information? And more importantly, and we know this to be true, what ecosystem is the operation being conducted in, especially if it has something to do with the management practice? I think if you've listened to the show for any period of time, you know that I have my beliefs or baggage 
They tend to be pretty consistent, although some change here and there. About success criteria, things you need in order to be successful. Doesn't matter whether you're commercial or whether you're too high in a backyard beekeeper. I'll rattle off a few. Location, quality of food, nutrition and, and availability of good food cures a lot of ills. I think size of the operation has to be disclosed. It is relevant, whether it's larger and larger contrast to other operations in that area, smaller or similar. Simply competition and predatory nature of foraging is in my mind. So I want to know, are you a small fry or are you a big gun? There's drift in other things. I want to know proximity to other beekeepers or maybe thought differently, the density of beekeepers in the area of practice. Are you on a mountain in Montana or are you sitting in the middle of the most congested state, New Jersey, with beekeepers on every corner? I really would like to know beekeeper experience and acumen. Are you a newbie or are you somebody who's been doing this for a long period of time? And what are your background credentials? And lastly, philosophically, style. Are you hands-off? Are you proactive? Are you passive management style? If I have somebody who just has two bees, two hives in the back, and they're doing it casually, I don't, I don't know that I'm going to lean into them unless they have something interesting on point to talk about. But I'll use an example of somebody like John Gott. Uh, John, I've talked about on the podcast, I've had on the podcast. He's a science dude. He needs to know why, and he's doing the science to understand why. So he's proactive, and I'm going to listen to what John is saying, because he presents the data and the evidence. And that goes with a certain aspect about me as a consumer. I'm a detailed person. When I'm evaluating what the others are saying, I'd like to have the fundamentals. It's the most important part of any interaction that I have with information that I'm uh, consuming is the fundamentals. And I think experience is a, an important factor. It has to be right with the context. Now, the funny thing about this is I've heard commercial beekeepers who manage thousands of hives give sage advice and wisdom, and I've heard them say things that have no place in a hobbyist operation. Commercial operators have great perspective on efficiency, cost, volume, management practices, but they do things differently. Sometimes they're off the mark when giving guidance to hobbyists who can move a little slower and invest a little more time in what they do and get a better outcome. If you think of it this way, I've spent years in disclosing my life lessons. In the last episode, I shared a new one that suggests if you simply break up your best hives because the size of them makes treatments inefficient. I'm a hobbyist beekeeper. I don't know that a commercial person would ever come to that conclusion 
because they're making splits or doing pollination or whatever. They're doing things that are off that trajectory. It's something that I've learned and I'm experimenting with. And when you learn these things, your antenna is up. And over time, you either debunk them or you uh, understand them. So I'm on a point of a learning curve. Now, the funny thing is, I recorded that episode, and the day after, I got my Bee Culture magazine, and I read a piece from Jim Two, which kind of had the same discovery. The thesis of what he wrote, what I take away, was that big hives tend to be more problematic. And we both discovered this independently of each other, but we're both in the same beekeeping style. I practice what I preach. I know Jim. I don't, I've actually met him personally, but I don't know him, know him. But I know his background. I know his baseline. I know his style. I know his operation, where he lives, what he does. And I can understand what he's presenting and whether it's relevant to me. And to me, it's very parallel. So I tend to read his articles because I, I learn a lot from him. I think it's, uh, Again, this is just me practicing what I'm preaching here. So the advice. I've said a lot, and I've not said anything. Is there a finish to this? You've heard all the different aspects to evaluate, whether you should lean in or lean back. But nothing trumps experience. Every year you should keep good notes and understand your practice and understand what works. I did some radical things in my early days because I listened to people and I couldn't find out the answer. And so I needed to know. So I spent a year evaluating specific things, and now I have a direction to go. Case in point, I could not get an answer as to how much you had to feed, what you had to feed, why you had to feed. If you even had to feed. I went the extreme route at one point and didn't feed my bees, and I learned that you need to feed your bees during the dirt. <laughs> I did that on behalf of science, I say, but, you know, I learned. And so now, every summer, I make sure that I feed my bees because there's just not enough forage in my area for them to sustain, even with a fall flow, to get them to 60, 80 pounds, which is the general guidance and wisdom for two hives in a backyard hobbyist beekeeper styles like me. So whenever you're listening, reading, consuming, watching, Consider the source. Ask yourself, what's the baseline style? What's the difference between yours? And does it play a factor? What kind of operation is there? Is there a difference between yours and does it play a factor? What kind of equipment are they using? Is there a difference in yours? Does it play a factor? I could keep going. Environment. What style of beekeeping and methods do they use? Most importantly, what's the experience and the evidence that's presented that makes you comfortable and confident that what they're telling you is something that is going to work? It's not a, a thought or a dream or a wish because a lot of beekeepers work on that principle. They wish something. I think about people who were feeding bees solution with thymol in it because they thought that the mites would be sucking the time all in and it would kill the mites. That was an experiment that happened at one point and the person was absolutely convinced that this was gonna work. Then you find out that the mites feed on fat body. They don't necessarily take in the hemolymph 
And even if they did, it probably wasn't going to make a difference. And the results didn't net out. It sounded like a great idea. We wanted it to be true, but there was no evidence that it was going to work. In fact, it's not the first time that people have tried to feed bees different things that could potentially impact parasites and other things, and it didn't work. So when I heard that, I was kind of like, eh, I'm not going to put that stuff in. I don't know what impact it has. Essential oils tend to be voodoo science in some respects. Don't write me hate mail about that statement. It's just a common wisdom that I have that I have yet to see super effective things. Don't write me. <laughs> oh, where did I go? I'll shut that off. My common lament is I don't do that in my practice and I've gotten by so far so I'm not going to start it now unless something comes out that I can lean in and agree with. So I spend a lot of time dispelling misinformation with new beekeepers. I think it's natural that they often do not have the experience to be good judges but if a new person and or experienced person can do what I said apply the fundamentals of a baseline who is presenting what their background is you can make a good judgment on whether you should lean in or lean back it's time for the local hive report you know things are in good way i feel like i'm in the home stretch of winter preparation and it's probably one of the earliest times that i felt this confident that things are in good shape going into winter had one hive implode, as you heard on the last episode if you listened, and I cleaned that all up and brought it to the garage. I had a moment thinking to myself, what should I do with that colony? It had remnants of honey in it. I'm talking about the polystyrene hive. In the end, all the bees were gone. They have absconded. And the hive sat in the yard for a couple days till I discovered it. And if there were any Varroa mite, they were toast anyway. I really didn't want to put the colony frames in the hive equipment back in the garage with remnants of honey and whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, most of the comb was new this year. Would it be viable to let the bees rob it out? I made a command decision, maybe not the brightest decision, but more one of convenience for me, and I left the boxes sitting over by the garage and let them get robbed out. Most of what they took was sugar water solution that I fed the bees anyway, and not real honey. However, I did not want to put the frames back in the garage with remnants of honey up in the corners only to have any mice decide that that would be a good morsel for them in the winter and come feed on it. I find that if I put frames in the garage that have honey in the corners or honey spots in them, which occurs when you get a dead out, that the mice do tend to find them and they chew up your equipment. It's better to let the bees clean all that stuff out, rob it, and leave it as just plain empty comb. At this time of year, except for this warm weather, we should not see any wax moth damage, so I'll be safe to store them till spring when I can put them back in service. When I look at the hive, the polystyrene hive that I brought in from Pad 7, it had a mix of a couple old frames 
and mostly new stuff that I gave foundation to this year and they built out. So that's stuff I'm confident that I can put right back in service. And as to the old one, I'll continue the quest of getting rid of anything that's not this year's comb. One of the harder parts is I have so much equipment stacked in the garage, I'm not sure where I'm going to put these boxes. The same could be said for the operation on pad number three. For my local hive reports, one of the things that I did on my to-do list was switch the five over five over five wooden nuke box arrangement to a six over six over six polystyrene. This past week, I finished painting those hive boxes, hive equipment, and glued it all together, polystyrene, and painted the top and bottom boards, and I put them in service. I spent the morning yesterday literally transforming frames from one hive to the other, and now in the picture is a pretty light blue hive with dark gray highlights and a dark gray roof. That's the paint scheme I ended up with. I'm not a huge fan of the light blue that I chose from Drylock. And if I had to rethink that, I would definitely go with a different color. So if you ever buy polystyrene hives, one of the things that I will tell you is the light colors of Drylock cement paint, which is what I used and I would imagine a lot of people use. They show dirt really bad. If I take the box and I set it on the floor, for example, with one of the paint signs down, when I pick it back up, it's got dirty marks all over it. And you can't wipe it off like a regular conventional hive. So light colors tend to show dirty marks. Now, in the end, I guess that's not the biggest problem in the world. Um, but that light blue is too light. The more important thing is the bees are nestled in that box. It's insulated. And wow. Wow, was there a lot of bees in that box. I picture a hive at this time to be moderate in size. I don't typically pull frames out in November and see the full face covered. I have a scale, one, two, three, and what I found in this hive, it's completely covered. Every frame through that middle box, all five of them, were just wall-to-wall -wall bees on both sides. And the honey storage was so high that I thought I would have to feed that hive to top it off. No, they have good eight frames of honey in the 18 frames that they have that are completely capped. So they got more than enough reserves and bees to get through winter. The hive is good to go. I was pleased to put that back together. And unless something happens from a mite standpoint late in the season, something I'm not counting on, that hive should come out really well. The other to-do item I had was to insulate the top bar hive, and that is mission accomplished. I still have feeders, and with this warm stretch, I'm going to feed a couple hives, especially the top bar. I'd like to see it have more food. I put a gallon on it yesterday, and I'm hoping this week they'll take it down. The odd thing is it might be 70 to 75 during the day, but it gets to 40 at night. And I'm hoping that the temperature of the liquid, which I'm feeding on top, is going to be conducive for them to pull it down. We'll see. I'll gauge that. 
And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. They have reasonable enough stores. I just want to make them fat and happy. So from a local hive report, everything is done. The last thing that I want to do, two items, coming back to my checklist. There's a three box, six frame hive sitting on the metal stand behind my normal pads. I'm going to move that up, but I'm going to wait till it gets cold and the bees are on the cluster. Right now they're still foraging. And my concern is if I move that hive, the bees that are foraging will come back and not find their hive. And I don't want to lose any bees at all. So I'll wait till they're completely not flying and then just close off the hive and walk it over and set it down. That might get fuzzy about when I put them down and open the hive back up again, but my guess is they'll go right back inside and they're not going to meander too much and that's a better time to move them. So that tip where if you want to move a hive, you can move it during the throes of winter is a good idea and that's what I intend to do. The last thing that I'm trying to make a decision on is oxalic acid vaporization. I don't know if there's a reason for me to do it this November, which is conventional. I did an early treatment in June, May or June, I don't remember, I have to look at my notes, for formic acid. And then I did a late treatment of Apovar, which should wrap up here in November. If I pull to Apovar, I can't imagine why I would need to oxalic acid vapor. Mites should be good. And I'm not going to do mite checks in November. I'm, I might, I don't know, I'm still kind of mulling through that, especially if the weather stays warmer. So, yeah, you can hear me spinning on this one. I have an oxalic acid vaporizer. I bought one with intent to use it in November. But I also know that as a contingency or plan B, I could use it first thing in the spring as a touch-up for when the bees start to forage and they have a minimal amount of brood and they would start the season mite-free. I'm still deliberating on that. The conventional way would be to do it in November, but given I did a late mite treatment this year to touch up my bees and make sure that they were good for fall, I'm not sure if this is the, the better plan. The uh, fallback to do it in the spring might be the better way to do it. That's what my current line of thinking is. One thing I've noted this year is just the plethora and abundance of yellow jackets. All my hives are closed down to single entrance, and every time I've been out there, they've been defending. The only time I saw yellow jackets going in was when the polystyrene hive collapsed. I saw them going in and out. That's how I actually knew that hive was in trouble. They're everywhere. In the polystyrene hive, which I had sitting in the breezeway, and I told you just a moment ago, I let them rob out. I bet 20% of the food went to the yellow jackets, which were just all over it. Even if you stand in the yard out in the front, you're visited by yellow jackets. They're everywhere this year. It's unbelievable. And the other day we saw a yellow jacket queen fly up and hit the kitchen window. I'm looking forward to it turning cold 
and killing them all off. This is something that makes me nervous in November when it's really warm like this, that the yellow jackets could come in and get super hungry and start taking your hives down. And I've seen that happen and talked about that in the show. So do me a favor, go out and look at the yellow jacket situation in your hive and consider robber guards if you're seeing a lot of them in your yards. I'm watching literally every day I walk out in the peak of the day to see what's going on and I see the guards are in full force at the entrances, but I don't believe they're being tested that much because typically when hives are being tested, they test you. <laughs> Uh, I stood out without a veil or anything the other day in a t-shirt, and yeah, I had one kind of followed me around, but for the most part, they left me alone as I walked through. And I even mowed the grass the other day in the yard, it looks spectacular, and they did not follow me on the mower. Usually when I ride by, all the front entrances close with the mower running, I get one or two follow me around. This time, nothing, nothing doing. They all stayed put. So, but don't let your guard down. Make sure you're watching for the yellow jackets because they're just, at least in our area, brutal this year. So, local hive report, happy, happy times. It's always roulette. You have confidence going into fall and hope that everything comes through. But, um, you know, we'll see. I'm going to knock on wood literally, and say, we'll see what happens. But uh, I feel pretty good uh, compared to previous years. I know last year was a little dodgy. Uh, this year, I have more confidence, but anything can happen. So we'll just wait. And the good news is, whatever we come out with spring, we'll start another season and look forward to that. Glasses half full, if you haven't figured that out. Local Hive Report, check. Just a few closing comments to shut the episode down. A couple things to close the episode out. The first thing I wanted to talk about is the availability of information. You could put what you learned in this episode to the test. It seemed to me that September, October seemed slow for some reason for different sessions going on. And all of a sudden in November, there was an explosion of things being offered. I don't know what the background of that is, but it seems like every day this week, if you want to, you can find a session. And the cool thing about it is a lot of these clubs that are presenting information, they've been um, opening it up more. They have the capacity in their Zoom or WebEx or whatever, and they ask you to register, but they tend to be able to accommodate more people. So, for example, you could probably look this one up. Dealing with Mean Bees is going on tonight, and I think I'm going to take that one in. Trinity Valley Beekeepers. It's a public meeting. So... Take a look out on the interwebs. I see them often in Facebook, but I also see them on various larger um, beekeeping clubs are offering training. And, it, you know, it's always fun to find different topics. Dealing with mean bees, does somebody have experience with that? Yeah. I'm curious to hear how this one goes. Not everything is the stupid hive that I had, but um, 
you know, it's always an interesting thing to hear how people handle it, their approach. I wanted to come back to Doldrums, the title of the last episode. Am I depressed? <laughs> no, I'm not depressed. Um, I think, you know, everybody suffers their ups and downs, but I, I had to address that because I think there's a misconception out there that I am depressed. No, I'm just finding different things to, to occupy my time. I'm bored. That I can say for definitively. Like, I keep saying to uh, Sharon, let's go somewhere. She goes, you can't. It's COVID. I said, let's go camp in a tent. <laughs> I don't care. I'll go pitch a tent somewhere, even if it's in my brother's backyard. I just need to get out away from the house kind of thing. Um, no, you know, look, there, there's, I think, a certain downturn for everybody in these times. Uh, certainly the election has played an interesting role, and I could express some opinions about that, but I'll... I don't ever go there on this program, but um, I I just hope that uh, the company, the company, the country finds unity and gets rid of some of this divisiveness. That's the only comment I'll add. Uh, you're you're entitled to all your own beliefs, but destruction of property in trying to defend your ways just makes absolutely no sense to me. And that's all I got to say about that. Um, yeah. I'm looking forward to my beekeeping projects. I still have a couple. I'm trying to figure out, again, what's the best thing to do for warm weather. I have some painting to do, and I hate to do my painting inside the house because when you do that, the whole house smells like paint, and you get yelled at for that. So I just built two new hive benches, and they need one more coat of paint, and they'll be done. I think I'll probably do that today, tomorrow after work or whatever while well, it's still warm. I think that's it. There's a couple other closing comment things that I had, but the episode's running long enough that I'm ready to shut it down and go outside. So, hey, thanks for stopping by. Hope you're doing well in whatever you're doing. And for those of you that are looking to start beekeeping, Now's a good time to get your act together. Uh, this is the time where you start searching out where you're going to get your bees and make sure your yard is prepped and all of that stuff in anticipation while it's still warm. It's very tough to go set your yard up when the ground is frozen. So you have a last little period of uh, time to get yourself organized. Don't forget your outside landscape first. Get your equipment painted, remember I just talked about, and ordered and all your stuff ready and order your bees. And this is the time, everybody. I hope you're getting excited if you're going to start next year. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you in the next episode.